Hey, welcome to the Publish, Promote, Profit podcast with me, Rob Kosberg. Every week, I interview thought leaders and experts who have used the book to grow their income and their impact. So tune in weekly for these interviews so you can learn how to use your own best-selling book and go from hunting for clients and opportunities to instead being the hunted. All right. Hey, welcome everybody. Rob Kosberg here with another episode of our Publish Pro Profit podcast. As usual, I have a great guest, somebody that is quite an expert and uh, after authoring 12 books, has a lot to say about the power of books and using them to uh, grow your authority, grow your business and really get your message out there. Eric Corey Freed is an award-winning architect, author and global speaker for the last 20 years plus. He's been the founding principal of Organic Architect, a visionary design leader in biophilic and regenerative design. I hope I said that right. Eric is the author of 12 books, as I mentioned, mentioned, uh, Green Building and Remodeling for Dummies, his most recent book, Circular Economy for Dummies. We're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. Uh, in 2012, he was named one of the 25 best green architecture firms in the U.S. and one of the top 10 most influential green architects. Uh, Corey, uh, Eric, great to have you on the show. Excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, um, This is a very exciting topic that no one ever asked me about, so I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, what we want to talk about is what you're probably asked all the time about, but absolutely, I'm interested in how you're using your books and that kind of thing. You've, you've gone from, uh, I guess, focusing your previous books on, you know, regenerative uh, architecture and thinking of, uh, you know, I imagine creating a zero carbon footprint and that sort of thing. And your most recent book is more broad, I guess, in its scope because it's about circular economy for dummies. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Explain a little bit what that means for uh, our layman here listening. Yeah, the circular economy is a framework that's been around for decades, really, in some form or another. But really, it's an alternative approach to how we make things. If you think about the way we normally make anything, right, a toilet brush <laughs> or a trash can or an iPhone, really what we're doing is we're extracting valuable resources out of the earth. We're making them into something which takes a lot of effort and creates a lot of waste. And then we use it. And then at some point we throw it away. So if you really kind of distill that down, what we've done is we've taken every valuable natural resource on earth and we've turned it into landfill in the dumbest way possible. That's right. really what, what we've done. And the circular economy seeks to change that by looking at how instead of you can do this take make waste approach instead do a harvest make and remake approach to create these kind of infinite loops and if you do it correctly not only will it improve the quality of your of your product but also could save your company a lot of money because we normally pay to throw things away yeah incredible the idea the concept i get but can you like put some meat put some flesh on the bones like give me an example of what that might look like in anything whether it's architecture and building or like you said making toilet brushes okay well i'll give you two that okay. are very 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 different first one is let's talk about architecture i'm an architect you know we have a whole chapter in the book just on the architecture imagine a building that was designed to be disassembled so if you're building a house when you want to expand it you can disassemble part of it and add onto it much more easily or if you want to renovate a kitchen it's designed to be disassembled. So those materials can be put back into reuse for somebody else, but you can update your kitchen. Imagine really where all the components are thought through in this way. So that way they could be really designed for infinite reuse. Cool. And then if you were to do that, wouldn't that also then address things like, well, what kind of toxic chemicals were we putting into the building? 
or can we avoid from putting in the building? Wouldn't it also address how much energy is it, does it take to produce these initial materials in the first place? And it really, it's just a much broader, much more holistic lens of consideration beyond just what does it look like and what does it cost? Love it. The second example, very, very different. Uh, there's a little shoe company called Adidas, you may have heard of. Heard of them. And uh, they realize that shoes are a huge waste problem and the raw materials are getting harder and harder to get. So they've started developing a line of circular economy shoes and it's made from plastic that's been harvested from the ocean, right? There's a big island of plastic trash Horrible. in the middle of the Pacific, the Pacific Ocean that's twice the size of Texas. And they thought, well, what if we took some of that? What could we make it out of? And so they made a sh uh, basically a, a shoe made it entirely out of ocean plastic. And the best part is, is that when you're done with it, you can send it back to Adidas and then they'll remake it into another shoe. Mm. So it's infinitely recyclable. It doesn't become waste again. It just stays in, in the material usefulness uh, uh, category. So you can just keep reusing it. So two very, very different examples, but really shows how just by looking at through this circular lens, you can start to redesign everything. That is very cool. So I didn't know Adidas was doing anything like that. Obviously it makes sense. But and this is something that's not biodegradable. You know, the first thing probably a lot of people think of is, OK, you want it you want it to be able to go back to the earth in a way that, you know, is gentle on the earth. And but we're actually talking about materials that aren't biodegradable, but you're sending them back and they're reusing them in a way that makes it totally efficient. That's super cool. We also talk in the circular economy about how could you design out waste from the start? So you're really rethinking all of your products so that way whatever normally would create waste, you could approach it in a new way, whether it's your, your makeup company and you're looking at the packaging of your lipstick and instead of throwing that away in the landfill, could that lipstick package, you know, once you finish with the tube, right? You send it back to the manufacturer and they could remake it into another tube of lipstick that's yeah. fresh and clean and healthy, you know, or looking at the product itself, where did it come from? Is it oil-based? And if so, that creates a lot of pollution and effort and the cost of oil keeps going up. Could you use another chemistry like soy or corn that could be grown? It's much more natural. And would that potentially make the product better, right? So there are all these little examples. And the book covers this entire framework of how you can look at each stage of your supply chain to rethink and redesign out waste. Very, very cool. I wonder, you know, I, I've always heard about this you know, massive island of, of garbage in the Pacific. By the way, I had no idea that it had grown to the size of the state of Texas. You're talking about like a thousand miles across. Is that accurate? Yeah, but it's not, it's not like a mound of trash that's yeah. it like, it looks like an, uh, like a smelly iceberg. It's, right. <laughs> it's all photodegraded in the water. Uh, and it's just kind of bleh, all gooey and liquefied and, uh, and oh. so if you, when you stick your hand in it, you pull out just, you know, this oozing muck. And so it's not like it's just a bunch of bottles. It's bottles that through sunlight and salt water have just kind of, meh, sort of you know, pseudo disintegrated. Yeah, but not really. Yeah. And so it's this big soup. And oh. uh, so that makes it even harder to recycle. That is horrible. And so are there efforts and this may be outside your scope, but it doesn't sound like it. Are there efforts, uh, significant efforts going on to clean that up, to reuse the materials in there like you like you just talked about? Uh, significant? Well, mm. the size of the problem is so big, you know, the question becomes, what could you do with that plastic? What could you make it out of? And how would you prevent it from ending up back in the in what's called the Pacific geyser? Because of the coastal flows of the weather patterns across the whole world, it's basically this weird, Yeah, it's like a toilet bowl that doesn't flush. Right. Basically, just all the trash in the ocean eventually will end up in this Pacific geyser just because of the loops.
And so there's nothing real significant that's going on right now. In one sense, it's kind of interesting because, you know, those were all valuable resources, right? At, at one time, I mean, they were money was spent to pull those things out of the earth and use them in such a way. You would think that you would think that maybe you could look at that with the eyes of that there's actual value in here if we could just harvest that. Uh, or am I just thinking totally wrong? No, you're you're spot on. You're one of the first people to actually get this idea. Yeah, you you bought this thing, right? This yeah. whatever, and you spend good hard-earned money for it. And then at some point, its value just went away. And the truth is, no, its value didn't go away. You just didn't realize that the value was still in- inherently contained and embodied within it. Right. And, you know, if you if you look at it in terms of just recycling, yeah, you can harvest some of the materials out. But if we start to redesign the products that we regularly use, you can not only uh, see the intrinsic value when you bought it, but see the intrinsic value that remains embodied in it all the way through and you know, kind of recapture some of that before you throw it away. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there there's a couple of issues, at least um, you've been thinking about this a lot longer than I have, but there's the issue of actually how to create the product in such a way that it is reusable or interchangeable or something, as you mentioned about kitchens or that sort of thing. But there's also consumer behavior, right? There's like with the Adidas shoes, do they incentivize people to send the shoes back, right? Like there has to be something, a way to change the consumer behavior of just taking those old shoes and donating them to a, a Goodwill or throwing them away or whatever to get them back to the factory in the first place, right? Yeah, there's a number of different uh, business models that we map out in the book. And so there are two in particular that I love that are just worth mentioning because I tell everybody about them. The first one is um, a company called The Renewal Workshop. And they do a couple things. They partner with large retailers and brands to take their kind of discarded clothes, you know, that go out of fashion or whatever, and they catalog them and then resell them. And if they need to be fixed or clean, they do that too. But there's a whole back-end economy to this of where they're creating jobs, they're keeping materials in use, they're keeping clothing in use, and they're diverting it from the landfill. And you can just go to renewalworkshop.com, I think is the, the address. Very cool. The second one is much more of a sharing economy, circular economy play, and it's called Borrow Baby. B-O-R-O-B-A-B-I. And the founders are really kind of remarkable. They realize, you know, if you've ever had kids, they outgrow their darn clothes every minute. And (laughs) baby clothes are usually in great shape because they don't wear them that long. Right. And they outgrow them. And what do you do with them? And so they've found a way that you can essentially look at baby clothes as a service, right? Where they deliver you a, a batch of clothing, you use it, and then you send it back to them. And then they clean it up and then keep it in use and keep it in service. And it's parents have been loving this this whole idea because it's solving a problem for them. It's cheaper than buying clothes and then throwing them away. Yeah, and of course there has all the environmental benefit as well. Very cool, very smart. I, you're going to have some really smart people that do some interesting things around all of this, right? And really, they'll both reap the rewards uh, from a financial perspective, but they'll also um, they'll make the kind of impact on the world that I imagine incentivize them to do it in the first place. So. Yeah, exactly. very cool. Yeah. Congratulations on writing that book. You know, I love the idea. I love the concept. I'm definitely going to pick it up. Um, okay. Let's maybe switch gears for a minute. You wrote 12 books. It's hard to write a book. I know that because we've helped over a thousand authors write books. It is hard to do. You didn't do it to earn a bunch of money in royalties. You, you did it for other reasons. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about the from your very first book till this last one. And I imagine it's not the last one you're going to write. It, you, you'll probably continue to write. 
what has that journey been like for you, both from the standpoint of, of how you started it, why you started it, and how has that progressed? Like, how have you seen great things happen from the books you've written? Well, first of all, every time I finish a book, I mean, you're catching me as I finished, you know, I just finished this book. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, every time I finish a book, I, yeah. you know, I'm like, never, never again. again. <laughs> yeah. And then my wife is like, okay, are we done? Is yeah. this because there is no, there's no magic to this. <laughs> right. Right. I don't take off for six months and go sit in a cabin in Maine or whatever and right. write on an old typewriter. I don't right. know where people get that idea. I'm working full time. Right. And living my life. And then I'm writing evenings and weekends and yeah. it just sucks for lack of a better word. <laughs> and it's just a lot of work. And every time it's like, that's it. But the first book, the first book, which was a dummies book, it's like I'm bookending with the two dummies books here. Oh. But the first book was Green Building for Dummies. And it came about because I was, I was already writing a column, a monthly column on green building. And the Wiley folks at the dummies, you know, the dummies company, Wiley, uh, approached me and said, Hey, you're an architect who can write. Do you want to write this book, Green Building for Dummies? And I'm like, yes. And I didn't think about it more than that. <laughs> and I thought, frankly, oh, this is great. I've got, you know, all I've got all these monthly columns. It'll be easy to write the book. Well, the monthly columns basically became just 30% of the outline. Yeah. And then I had to rewrite all of it. And um, it's, yeah, it's a ton of work. But an amazing thing happened. It changed people's perception of me after the book came out. Mm. I was still the same person. I still had the same, you know, desires and visions for buildings. But just having the book out, my speaking fees went up. I didn't ask them to. They just did. People invited me to stuff. And it, it was like a, a light bulb went off. And I'm like, holy crap, a book can really transform your public perception. And this is this was news to me because I'm an idiot. But to people <laughs> listening, they're like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and so I started thinking about, well, how could I really lean into this and use this in a meaningful way to really get the kind of work that I want? The green building book was great but it got me more of what I was already doing, doing, you know, green houses for people. Yeah. So in the next book, I started thinking about, well, what do I want to do next? And I wanted to start working on green schools. And I tried in vain to work on green schools. Uh, nobody, everybody said, well, you don't have experience working on schools. Uh, I tried partnering with other firms that do have school experience. And I thought, well, I'll be the sustainability person and you'll be the school person and right. we'll go after this stuff. And we couldn't, you know, had trouble getting hired. And so I went to Wiley, my publisher, and I said, I go, look, I have an idea for a book on green schools, and I want to write it. And they said, well, why you? Which is a great question. Yeah. I said, well, I'm a nationally known sustainability expert. Of course, it's me. And they said, yes, but you haven't done schools either. Why you? And I said, oh, no problem. I'm going to partner with some, I'll have a co-author who has school experience. So I reached out to my friend, Lisa, and I said, hey, you've got school experience. I've got green experience. Let's write this book that needs to be written. And I went from nobody even wanting to talk to me or hire me to design a school to a year later, the book comes out and I'm the keynote speaker at the Green Schools Conference that year. Wow. Got a ton of consulting going on, consulting on green schools. How does that transformation happen in a year? I didn't change as a person. The transformation was the book gave you credibility and then we leveraged that credibility. Every time we'd finish a chapter, I would kind of annotate it and put it out as an article. Mm. And at the bottom of the article, it would say from the forthcoming book, Sustainable School Architecture. And so that's when I really started to kind of fire on all cylinders that you can really use this to position yourself where you want to be and um, give yourself kind of instant credibility. And the process of writing the book changes you. It does, yeah. it does do that. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I think you've expressed something that... Now, I have a hard time often 
um, helping people to really grasp and understand, you know, with, with what we do, for the most part, people are coming to me and they're asking us to help them to ghost write a book or, or whatever. We kind of solve that problem, if you will, of having to write on weekends and, and after hours because we we help to do it for them with their content and their voice, of course. But oftentimes people will you know, want to refer us clients and, you know, we have a, a lot of great uh, partners, if you will. And they always think, well, you know, I'm, I'm only going to refer somebody that is an expert on a particular niche and that's been working in it for a long time. And that's the person that really needs to write a book. And I, and I say, well, that, that's true. That person should write a book, but also you should write a book in regards to where you want to go with your business. I wrote my first book for a financial services company, you know, 14 plus years ago, and my financial services company was brand new at the time. And that, you know, that built me a multi-million dollar business uh, during, you know, a terrible recession and what led into the financial collapse. And so you've expressed that in a really interesting way. I wonder if you have any other examples, like you gave the school example, which is like, whoa, that's incredible. You also wrote 10 other books. So where else Where else have you gone with those books? So I find that the deeper I go into this, because it's been 14 years since the first book, so 12 books in 14 years, that's pretty good wow. record, yes. right? Yes. And I I think in an ideal world, you know, I, I told myself a book a year kind of feels right, even though it's not sane. <laughs> but what I'll do uh, is I'll get a lot of ideas for books. You know, I also have a publisher to reach out and say, do you want to do this book? Yeah. And my first response reaction is always yes. And I have to stop myself and go, wait a minute. Am I the person to write it? Is it? And again, I look at it through this lens of, is it going to get me to where I want to go? Where do I want right. to go? How would I leverage this to get there? And I find that the more egoless I can be about it, the better, right? So it's not what I want to write. You know, there's a voice in my head telling me, nobody gives a crap what you want to write. That's basically always in my head. Yeah. It's more what needs to be written. And so the Circular Economy book is a good example of that, right? You know, I, I've, I know all the, the Circular Economy is a small community. I know all the experts in the community. They could all just as easily write this book. But I wanted to write it because this is more the consulting that we wanted to do with clients. We were already talking to them about developing zero waste strategies and designing out waste. The book is a way to, you know, kind of build that credibility. But it's not about what I want to write. What I want to write about Circular Economy Meh, not necessarily. What I'd want to write about would be like, um, I don't know, dogs and, you know, <laughs> going on bike rides and stuff. But nobody wants to hear that. So, <laughs> so I have friends that do this all the time. They'll call and say, I have a great idea for a book that I want to write. And I, yeah. my first thing is nobody gives a crap what you want to write. What needs to be written? Yeah. And that's the hardest piece, right? Is, is to do that. And so what I'll do is, and I imagine you do this with, with your clients, right? Uh, I'll tell them you need to write up a book proposal, just mock up a book proposal and and go through that process and ask yourself those hard questions about who are the competitors in this space, where what books would share the shelf with this book? How yeah. is this book different than those? Why does this one need to be written now? Why are you the one to write it? And if you just go through those questions, it'll give you so much clarity on this very question. But but I probably didn't answer your No, no, <laughs> didn't you, answer didn't. Your, you brought your up eleven other things. Yeah. <laughs> but I think more more to the point. I was talking to a, f a friend of mine who's also an architect, Dave is his name. And this is 10, 11 years ago. And Dave had this idea. He said, hey, you've written books. We should write a series of books for architects that are studying for their license exams. And uh, I was like, ugh, that sounds like a lot of work. That was my, <laughs> that was my first reaction. 
they're very technical books. They're very dry. And he said, well, that's the thing. You're funny. We can write them and make them interesting. We can design them beautifully. So he had a vision and he sold me on the vision. And, and he basically, the vision was, what if we created the study guides that we wish we had when we were studying for our license exams? It was a very clear vision. And to this day, is still our vision. So we put out this series of books and it took, it took years to do them. But that's where the book a year came from. Yeah. At the time, there were seven licensing exams for architects. So we had to put out a series of seven books. They're very technical. Yeah. We had to create the diagrams, but we did it as a self-publishing strategy rather Excellent. than going to a publisher because we knew the audience, we knew how to reach them. And so that became a whole other kind of discipline of do we self-publish or do we or do we traditionally publish and, yeah. and how and how does that work? And for us, it, self-publishing made sense. So we became a publishing company essentially. Yeah. And and for the last 10 years, we've been doing that. And it's 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 changed my life, right? I've gotten to talk to thousands of young people who've gotten their gotten their architects license and and it's been incredibly rewarding. I love that. I love that. Talk to me a little bit about that from a financial perspective. Um, you know, selling books generally. Well, <laughs> you know, look, we tell our clients, look, if this is about selling books, then getting a return on investment is going to be hard to do because they're writing us a, a check, right, to to get a result, a book launched, you know, book sales, that kind of thing. For us, it's all about all the questions that you asked are pertinent and important. We ask questions besides those. You know, where do you want to go with this book? How are you going to use it to really make an income to get bigger checks, speaking engagements, media and PR, uh, lead generation for your business? Those are the kinds of things that we want our authors to think about when uh, creating their book. So what does all that look like from the perspective of serving this community of architects that are yet to take their their test? It's very different. You know, the, you take a sustainability book. Well, I speak at 50 events a year on sustainability. Wow. It's a very clear, obvious, direct connection. I, my day job is working on giant sustainability plans for universities and hospitals, right? So there's a very clear direction. Then suddenly here comes along. Well, you're going to write a series of seven books for young people who don't have any money, <laughs> who are taking, right, right. who are taking their licensing exams, hoping to have money, I guess. And then, you know, and having them pass. So the financial model there is a little different. That I didn't do for the speaking, but there were some interesting things that came out of it. One is because we're self-publishing, we're upending that traditional model, right? The traditional model is the book sells for $25. The publisher keeps 85%. You get 15%. Yeah. And it's fit. And by the way, everyone, it's 15% off of wholesale price. Right. <laughs> Which right? is nothing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So a twenty-five dollar book sells, you know, wholesale is probably twelve fifty, yeah. and then fifteen percent of that is I don't know a dollar. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. dollar something. Luck. <laughs> so you're not going to make money off the book. Yeah, you make money off what the book brings you. That's the that's the real lesson. So for me, you know, one speaking gig makes it worth it, right? One consulting gig makes it worth it. That's kind of the beauty of it. But with the self publishing, it's a little different. We're now keeping hundred percent of the profits, but we're running it as a company. So the marketing and the PR and the website is all up to us. Nice. So it's a very different model, but a whole, a whole series of kind of skills and things that we needed to learn. And, and I think because we're both architects and we both have this mindset of we're coming from a place of we're trying to help people. We're not trying to get it perfect. So we don't beat ourselves up too much, right? The first yeah. website we had for the books was awful and I hated it. <laughs> and then it got better. And then, um, the design of the, the, you know, the initial design we had for the books was okay. And then it got better. And then the content 
we improve it every year and it just gets better. And so yeah. I think we take this very iterative, iterative approach and we track and measure these things. And so we have direct book sales. We have, of course, coaching that comes out of that. And that's what we really leveraged. Then we have consulting for firms because all these people work in architecture firms all over right. the, all over the country. Right. And so that's really been it. And we still have other revenue streams to look at that we haven't even touched yet, including in book advertising because it's a very, very targeted audience. And then, of course, curated content where we're co, you know, let's say we're, you know, co-branding a webinar or something with a manufacturer who makes windows or something, right? There's all those revenue streams that we haven't even gotten to yet. And again, we're taking this very kind of incremental approach because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was just, can we make a study guide that's better than the ones that we had, the study guide that we wish we had? Yeah. And so the revenue, the revenue is substantial. That's the best part. But it's, it's again, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, well, you obviously have um, more hours in your week than most people because it sounds like you got about four or five jobs. <laughs> no, I have the. So, but yeah, that, I think I think that's you know to your point, Rob. That's the thing is that I'm getting this going. It's not yeah. like I'm writing a book about brain surgery, right? And then acting as a, as an architect of strip malls during the day, and then and then dreaming about sustainability at night. Everything that I do is tied to architecture and building. Yep. And specifically green building. So I'm getting a lot of this. So I'm, I'm working on those projects, consulting on it, writing about it, teaching about it, speaking yeah. about it, all the same thing. You know, what I don't get are the people that I'm going to give lectures about health. I'm going to write books about materials. I'm going to, no, 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 you got to, you got to get this act, you know, this kind of synergy going. Yeah, you're you're uh, an inch wide and a mile deep in architecture and renewables, yeah. and I, that's spectacular, right? I mean, what I really love, I love everything that you've done with your books, uh, and thank you for all the examples because they are, if they don't motivate people, I don't know what will. But even what you've done with your test prep business, in essence, right, test prep for architects, is brilliant because you've gone a mile deep on that. I mean, coaching, consulting. This is what I tell my clients. I'm like, look, you're an expert on this space. There are other people that want to access your expertise. And the people that can write you a big check are the people that are going to read this book and they're going to say, you know what, we have to get him or her into our firm or we have to get him or her into our lives, into our business, and we're willing to write a big check for access. And, you know, the cool thing is you're making an impact on, I guess, thousands of architecture students, but then you have a much, you know, kind of narrower end of the funnel right? Where you have architecture firms and and others that are writing you much bigger checks to get more proximity to you and your partner so you can help them to do what you've done in your own business. That is brilliant. I love that. It's also strange because at the same time, I'm still doing a traditional publishing route like with, you know, with with this latest book, right? Where the speaking and the consulting is the back end, but it's very different. I mean, here's the numbers. There are 14,000 people that take their architectural license exam every year. If I went to a traditional publisher and I said, we're going to sell 14,000 copies of the book <laughs> at, at best. At best. That's if we capture at, 100% of the market. We, yeah. <laughs> if we get 100% of the market, we'll sell 14,000 copies. Right. They would say, get out of my office. Right, right. So in a sense, we had to self-publish, right, <laughs> in, in a real way. But here's the thing. We're capturing probably, I don't know, 80% of that market. And they then tell their friends, I use this to pass. And so it, the growth has been organic and consistent throughout the years. And then we're leveraging it into the coaching and the consulting and the, you know, and firm and, you know, firm wide stuff. Yeah. 
at the same time, that half of my brain is in, I'm a publisher. And the other half is, oh, yeah, I'm kind of remaining in these traditional publishing, publishing worlds and channels, too. Yeah. Uh, it's very strange, and uh, I have trouble keeping track myself sometimes. <laughs> well, you do what you do, right? You're creating right. content. You're working in your business. You obviously love what you do. You love the impact that you're making. So all you're doing, in, in one sense, is documenting that and uh, you know, creating an opportunity for other people to learn from it. I, I think it's brilliant. You deserve all the rewards that you're getting for it because it is hard work. I mean, it's not easy to write one book, let alone 12 books. And on though it's the same subject matter, very, very different, right? I mean, very the depth of it is, you know, quite immense. So, yeah. you know, congrats. Love it. Oh, love, thank you. Love what you've done. What what's next? Although like you said, your your wife's like, this is the last one. So it probably is <laughs> until about three months from now. But uh you must have something in your mind as to what's next. <laughs> uh ten years ago, I well, probably more than ten years ago, I met I spoke at a conference with Dan Pink, who's a great author. Oh, yeah. Love his stuff. So, sells a lot of copies, speaks a lot. And he's a great guy. Very nice. And we had coffee. And he won't remember this at all. It really had an impact on me. And I, what have you learned? <laughs> What's become clear to you since starting this whole process? Because, you know, I thought, well, I want to be where he is. And he said, you know, as a mental exercise, what could sell 8 million copies? And in the publishing world, 8 million copies is kind of a magic number. That's like, you know, Dale Carnegie... Yeah. Tipping point, you know, Gladwell yeah. type of numbers, chicken soup for the soul type number. Right. And he basically said, what could you write that could sell, you know, 8 million copies? Not what do you want to write, but what if there was a gun to your head and said, write a book that sells 8 million copies, <laughs> what would it be? Yeah. And that sticks with me forever. And so over the last, honestly, 10 years, I've been haunted by this and working and working and working on it. And I've, I've had four different generations of thought into, you know, Little old me, what could I write that could possibly sell 8 million copies? And the truth is, I think everybody has something in them that could sell 8 million copies if they just thought it through. Yeah. So it's a beautiful mental exercise. And in doing that, certain avenues pop up that really remove the sense of ego and self from it. And just in terms of what could have the greatest impact, what would have the, the greatest buzz, what would spread biggest word of mouth. And the answer might, if you do this, the answer might surprise you. Yeah. Great way to end. Great exercise to do. Uh, love it. Really enjoyed the conversation. Where can we send people to learn a little bit more about you, learn about your your firm itself, uh, get your books, etc.? So, you know, you can do, find me on social media, of course, but ericcoreyfree.com is kind of my speaker and author website. Great. There's also circuleconomyfordummies.com. If you can type all those words out, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. That'll take you to the latest book. And then Organic Architect is also kind of a general place to just find you know, my business practice and what I do with architecture. Love it. Love it. Eric, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, uh, my pleasure. You know, really, really uh, enjoyable conversation. Love what you've done with your books and much continued success, my friend. Thank you so much.